Hey church, welcome to Frontline Community Church Podcast. My name is Cody Mahaffey and I'm the connections and group pastor here at Frontline in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So our mission here is simple, to see zero people unchanged by Jesus. So whether you've been following Jesus your whole life or your journey has just begun, we hope that this message will help draw you near to the person of Jesus. Be challenged and encouraged by his word and be moved to action. We hope these next few moments are a blessing to you and equip you to see who God really is and who you really are in him. Well, good morning, Frontline. Well, I'm excited to talk about everybody's favorite topic, suffering. Right? You laugh because it's the thing that all of us try to avoid at all costs, right? It's the thing that uh, we do not like to even give attention. We try to ignore it, ignore it, bury it, push it down. Uh, we do not like to suffer, and I'll speak for me, I hate it, right? I'm going to try to avoid it at all costs. And so what I want to do is show you a couple images of different sources of suffering in my life. And so just brace yourselves. It's, it's pretty heavy stuff, all right? Let's see the first one. So that's a grocery store. And my confession is, is I am useless to navigate it. I have no idea how to navigate a grocery store. It makes no sense to me. Some of you, you go in, you know exactly where things are. Man, I struggle with that. I'm unorganized, so it's really hard for me to figure that out. Have you ever tried to find toothpicks in a grocery store? It's impossible, right? 49 times down one uh, hallway because dang it, on 50, I might find it. But nope, I'm usually coming home missing something. Uh, man, I just really struggle with that. It's a source of suffering. I know my life's super hard. But there's something even worse than grocery stores. Yep. That one, that doesn't need any uh, words to it. You get it, right? The DMV, so the Department of Motor Vehicles, uh, Secretary of State, it's the place you go for all your vehicle needs. Um, the problem is, is oftentimes, whatever I'm going in there for, I leave without it. Um, and maybe it's me, you know, I, I'm always forgetting something, I'm always losing something, so maybe it's me, but chances are you could probably identify. It seems like they want all your documents, like all of them. Like, I'll come in, I was like, all right, here's my license, 12 pieces of mail with my name on it, uh, you know, the deed to my house, I got a vial of my blood, I got fingerprints, I, I got everything, here it is, this is everything I have to my name, please just give me a license plate. And then they'll say, uh, do you have toothpicks? <laughs> You know, like they, they just want to make it, I, they want to make it impossible. And I'm sure if you're in here and you work for the DMV, I'm sure you're the exception to that. So, but that's, that's something I am constantly struggling with. So there's one that's even worse than that. All right. So the first two, you were tracking with me. This one, you're like, where are we going? Right? So this is a picture of a scooter, which I used to own because yes, I'm a grown adult and I make my own decisions. Um, and last summer, I purchased this scooter, um, and man, it is a blast. It's got headlights, it's got blinkers, uh, it's got a horn. It's not technically street legal, but there's like a loophole that that scooter kind of fits in. So that was my ride last summer. Uh, so if you almost ran me over on Plainfield, yeah, that was me. I was the guy on the scooter. Um, the problem is, is I would later find out that that scooter was stolen. So I purchased a stolen scooter. Right? So as a pastor, like I, like, I could see it now, right? Local pastor steals kids' scooter. Like, I was just waiting for that to happen. Um, and when I bought it, I did not know it was stolen. And I would later find out because I reached out to the manufacturer to get a part. And when they asked for the VIN to the scooter, uh, it kind of triggered their system. And they said, hey, did you buy this scooter from this place? 
uh, from this guy? I said, yeah, how did you know? And they responded back, uh, that one and 10 others were actually stolen and you just bought it. So yeah, so I was illegally driving a stolen scooter for two months on Plainfield headed to church. So the grace of God though is good, right? Amen. Uh, so I never got in trouble. I did the right thing. I called the cops. I said, I did not steal the scooter, but I have it. Please come get it unarmed. I'm not, you know, come get the scooter. They returned it to the rightful owner. And that summer was scooterless and funless for me. But that's all right. We're in a new season, right? We're in a new season of time. Uh, so thanks for humoring me, right? Th these are kind of silly tensions that I have uh, that cause, right, suffering. But here's the reality. Some of us, we have things like that but some of us, we have things deeper than that. We have things that maybe we're suffering with, struggling with, that cause us to feel empty. That cause us leaving those things feeling frustrated, down, maybe depressed, anxiety-driven. We all have those things in our life. And so what I want to propose is there's a suffering that's empty and voidless and hopelessness without purpose. There's that kind of suffering but there's another suffering that's actually connected to redemption. It's a suffering that we can actually engage in and be a part of that doesn't leave us feeling hosed, smoked, you know, exhausted. There's a redemptive suffering. And that's what I want to bring us into is what scripture actually talks about that. Because no, none of us are going to argue that we all suffer regardless of what you believe. But I think there's a way to suffer with joy, a way to suffer uh, proudly to, to suffer with Jesus. And so today we're actually, we're actually going to be in the book of Acts, right? So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's the gospels. Uh, it's the ministry of Jesus. And Acts is the first book that kind of paints the picture post-resurrection. Um, and there's a verse uh, in 1.8 that I think really captures the whole narrative and story of Acts really well. So I'll read it. It said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Amen? That's the book of Acts. It's simply the disciples being filled with the Holy Spirit and them having the authority and power to share the gospel with those who had never heard it before so that they might come to know Jesus. The book of Acts. And so what I want to do is I want to hone in and spend some time talking about a character that I really identify with, and, and maybe you will too, uh, named Saul. So Acts 9, some of us know this as the Damascus Road experience. Um, and we know Saul as Paul, right? Paul, the apostle Paul, the one that followed Jesus, he wrote most of the New Testament. Uh, but during that time, uh, it would have been common for people to have a dual name. It was custom. So when I say Paul or Saul, just know that I'm talking about the same person, but I'm specifically talking about Saul, which was pre-Jesus Paul. Clear as mud? All right, yeah, I figured. So, um, so one of the things that I think is important in this context to talk about Saul is the fact that he was a Roman citizen. Uh, and basically what that meant is he had privileges and access to people and information and things that not everybody did. So he was kind of like an elitist in his time. He, he, he was somebody that had privilege um, and access to things that not everybody did. And then second, um, Saul was actually a Pharisaic Jew, which means he was no fun. He was no fun, right? Because the Jews, we know this, uh, the Pharisees, they were all about the law, right? They were all about the letter. They were all about crossing the T's, dotting their I's, uh, praying at the right times, reading scripture. They would have memorized it all. They were all about doing the right things, but relationally, they were dead. 
religiously, they were actually dead. And everything Paul was as a Pharisee did not lead to things that me and you know, and he would later find out. And so I want to paint the, the context a little bit before Acts 9. So basically at this time, Saul is in Jerusalem and he goes to the high priest and he says, hey, I want letters to get me to the synagogues in Damascus to imprison Christians. So everything Saul was during this time was to murder and imprison Christians because he was afraid that the gospel might get out. And so he's trying to snuff it out. He says, man, Jerusalem, we got all the Christians here, but I'm headed to Damascus because I know there's Christians that have kind of gotten away. And I don't want this message of Jesus to mess with my God, to mess what I think is real and true. And so here's where the text picks up. Uh, it's in Acts 9, 3 through 6. It'll be on the screen if you're following along with me. So here's what it says. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Does anyone else want to hear those words from Jesus? Cody, Cody, why do you persecute me? I think the reality is though, is those words, I don't think Jesus was condemning Saul. I don't think he was shaming him. I don't even think he was angry with Saul, even though he had every right to, to be. I think Jesus is saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I love you. I created you. And I've seen that you're off this path and you're chasing who you think is God, but I'm God. I think Jesus is really inviting him into his presence and he's not condemning Saul in this moment. And I think Saul had a very appropriate response to the risen Lord coming and having this big moment. He says, who are you, Lord? I think it's important to realize that he said Lord, which means in that moment, what he realized is everything he knew and believed about God was a lie. And by him saying, who are you, Lord? What he's declaring now and proclaiming is, okay, now I'm worshiping you. And I don't know who you are, but I just know the God that I was chasing is not you. And so right now we see, we see Saul's heart coming to the Lord and being changed right now. And so for, for all of Saul's life up until this point, he was the cause of suffering for so many people. He was, he was murdering Christians. He was imprisoning them. Man, he, was, he had a mission and he was on it. And he was totally against Jesus and his people. And he was going to do anything and everything he could to stop it. Now here's the reality. I think Saul was causing suffering in others because I think deep down he knew that he was suffering because he was following a dead religion. I think deep down he was insecure about what he believed and that it didn't fill him up and he didn't know how to cope, so he just instilled suffering in everybody else. I think Saul knew what he was following was not real. And so when Jesus encounters him, he was woken up. 
And what's important to know is Saul didn't actually realize that to love like Jesus is to suffer like Jesus. To love like Jesus is actually to suffer like Jesus. And we see Jesus demonstrating that. Uh, The question I ask is, Jesus, of all the people you could have saved, why Saul? The one that's literally been killing all your people and trying to diminish your purposes and your ways, why are you coming to him? It's because Jesus knew that it wasn't about him. It was about going to Saul and revealing his glory to him that he might actually lessen the suffering that Saul felt as somebody who was very confused about what he believed. And so Jesus, what we see is we don't see him condemning Saul. We actually see Jesus coming and extending extraordinary compassion for Saul. He comes, we got to remember this moment is Jesus already resurrected. He already died, resurrected. He's in heaven. And Jesus literally comes back. Does anyone have a problem that the the one time he comes back post-resurrection is to literally share his glory with the enemy? To share the truth of God with somebody that had been killing all of his people and imprisoning them? Man, I have a problem with that. God, of all the people you could have came and visited, you visit him? He he could have killed him. Jesus could have came in and in a moment he could have killed him, but he didn't. He shared compassion with Saul. And he did it specifically because what Jesus is painting for us is to love like Jesus is to be willing to suffer like Jesus. And so a question I want to pose is, um, man, are you like Saul or do you have a tendency like Saul that you put your trust in something that has high promise but under delivers? The high promise of the law that if I do all these things, that I'll have a full life, but at the end of the day, you lay your head on the pillow and realize I'm empty. That I'm empty, that I'm suffering, that there's something disconnected with my heart. And something that's important to know is whenever Jesus uh, is sharing his glory with people, he oftentimes partners with us. So we see the conversion moment, but that's just half of the story. Oftentimes when Jesus is revealing himself, he uses us to actually do the same. And so uh, Ananias is the next person in the story. And this would have been the first Christian uh, that Saul would have actually encountered. And Saul, or sorry, Ananias actually demonstrated what it looks like to love like Jesus and to suffer like Jesus. So let me read it in Acts 9, 13 through 19. This is the story uh, continued with Ananias' role. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he, Saul, has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. The Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. We see here 
we can hear the angst in Ananias' voice. Ananias is saying, Jesus, I don't think you realize this, but Saul is killing us. He's imprisoning us. And something that's important to know is up until this point, Ananias wouldn't have known that Saul just had that conversion out in Damascus Road. So as Jesus is revealing the plan for Ananias to pray over Saul, he's assuming that Saul is coming with his original mission, which was to imprison Christians in Damascus. So in some, ways, in some ways, what it feels like for Saul or for Ananias is, man, you're, Jesus, you're actually asking me to go on a suicide mission. At best, I'll be in prison. At worst, he'll kill me. And so what we see Ananias actually living into is Ananias loved like Jesus and he suffered like Jesus. Because what Ananias was willing to do, even though he knew that it might cost him his life, it might cost him jail time, he said, God, I trust you, I'll be obedient to you, and I'll learn how to love Saul in this moment, even though he's imprisoned and killed my people. And I think that's the part about Ananias that maybe we can relate to, but I think the part that I relate to the most is doubting in that moment. God, will you show up if I go do this? Will he actually be saved? And then the second thing is, is do I actually want him to be saved? Do I actually want my enemy to know you? Because I'd really like to withhold your glory from that person who's caused me so much suffering. And if I'm honest, I can relate to that. And so I think the tension we're left with is similar to Ananias. Do I really want to see my ex-husband come to Christ? Do I really want to see my abuser come to Christ? Do I really want to see the enemy come to Christ? And here's a, here's a reality. Some of you, either you've suffered something legitimately, maybe in the past or right now, or, or maybe something that would happen down the road. And what I want you to know is Jesus never invites us into just enduring suffering that's abuse-oriented. That is never God's heart. That is not what God is inviting us into. And if that's you, reach out to us. That is not something the Lord invites us into, and we'll walk with you in that. What Jesus is inviting us into in terms of suffering is to actually embody who Jesus was and to live it out faithfully, even if people disagree. Even if it loses popularity in your school even if it would be the result of a demotion at work, even if it would threaten your status with coworkers. Loving and suffering like Jesus is, is chasing him and sharing his glory with people no matter what it costs us. And that's what we see Ananias living into. And so my question is this, what would change for you and the world if your enemy was healed of suffering? Because I think it's a dual role. What, what would actually change for you if your enemy, that maybe you had that person in your mind, that if they actually had the glory of Jesus like Saul did? And how would that actually change the world that you're in? Let's see what changed for Saul. So we're headed into the text where Saul has now been changed by the Lord. Ananias has already prayed over him. And now the question we always ask is, okay, 
Is that person going to live the life that they proclaim? Let's see, let's see what he does. So Acts 9, 19 through 22. Uh, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he, Saul, the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Paul had learned to love like Jesus and to suffer like Jesus. So what we see is, is Saul, his whole, his whole ministry was all about imprisoning God's people to snuff out the way, to snuff out Christianity from the face of the earth. And everything he was and did was to cause and inject suffering. And now he's adopted the gospel of the people he was causing suffering to and is now preaching that the son of God is the Messiah in places where that would not have been welcomed. The script's been turned on Saul's life. So his approach into Damascus is not to cause suffering to Christians, it's actually to reveal God's glory to the Gentile people who were non-religious people who his people would have hated. And so something that's significant about who Paul was, I mentioned it earlier, but a dual name would have been custom during this time. Um, so the best way I can describe it is uh, kind of uh, the modern day nickname for us, right? How many of you have a nickname? Okay, a couple. So anyone that comes to my parents' house leaves with a nickname. My dad is like a master of nicknames. So my nickname is Job, Jobbers, Jobby, Jobination, the, the variation of Job, right? I'm not that holy. It's not Job, it's Job. So that's my nickname. Uh, and something interesting is if my dad calls me Cody, I know I'm in trouble. But if he calls me Job, we're good, we're good. Uh, and so that's kind of what's happening with Saul and Paul is there's a, there's a part of his name that has like this relational dynamic uh, that's proud of the gospel. And then there's a part of his name that's not. So for Saul, that would have been his Hebrew name. He would have been, he would have preferred to be called Saul because that would have been his Pharisaic Jewish name uh, that he would have been called. So when he's around his Pharisees, all the religious elite before he met Jesus, that's what he preferred to be called was Saul. He never went by Paul. So Paul was actually his Roman name. And his Roman name would have identified much with the Gentile people who were not Jewish. So it's no wonder that Saul went by Saul and not Paul. But here's the reality. When Saul met Jesus, his life changed. And he said, now I'm going to be all things to all people. I'm going to push the Saul tendencies away. I'm going to move my Pharisaic Jewish uh, religion to the side, the dead religion. And I'm going to take up a Paul life that says, I will preach the gospel faithfully to the Gentiles, even if it costs me my life. He was so faithful to the gospel that he changed his name, that he was willing to live into a very risky part of his name that would have bridged the gap between him and the Gentile people, but would have caused a wedge between him and the Jewish people. So Paul was faithful, all, all, like to the point of changing his name for the sake of the gospel. And so here's the reality. We see throughout scripture, the rest of the book of Acts, you can go through. 
Saul's one assignment is to share the goodness of God, that Jesus is, is in fact the resurrected son of God, the Messiah, and the God that he once worshiped, the dead religious God that he worshiped was a lie. And that came out a lot of risk and a lot of confusion. Disciples are like, is this genuine? He was coming to kill us and now he's worshiping Jesus. What happened? And then the other people are like, what, you turned on us? So it was like a lose-lose situation for Saul, but he knew his assignment. He knew he was named Paul. And now we see him living into that reality. That he's not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed to preach Jesus in, in all the places he goes. And so I think the thing that we're left with is, well, what about all the people that rejected his message? What about all the Jewish Pharisaic people and even some Gentiles and other people, what about all of them that did reject him? Because there was plenty of people that rejected his message. And so we might ask ourselves the same thing. Okay, what if I'm obedient like Ananias, like Paul? What if I'm obedient like them and I get rejected? That they reject the message that I bring. So part of the story, uh, the scooter story, remember? Like 15 minutes ago. Yeah, you remember. You remember the scooter story, right? So there's part of, you're like, yeah, yeah, duh. That was 15 minutes ago. We have, an, we have a tension expand, or uh, it, you know what I'm trying to say. I'm losing my words now. Um, and so part of, uh, part of the story I actually didn't share uh, was, the re, was the engagement that I had with the store owner. So when I went to the pawn shop, um, I had a conversation with that guy. And like first things out of his mouth was like, uh, oh, yeah, so you're, you're the pastor. I'm like, oh my gosh, how does he know I'm a pastor? Like, that's not like a badge of honor I try to go into every place and know. I'm like, what is he going to hold against me? So he had Facebook creep me. Anyone do that before you go meet somebody you haven't known? Yep, you liars, those who aren't raising your hand, you do that. Uh, I do that. Uh, and so he Facebook uh, creeped on me and saw that I was a pastor at Frontline. Uh, and so he said, yeah, uh, you know, so you're a pastor, right? And I said, yep. And we were talking a little bit and I said, yeah, I said, are you a Christian? Like, are you a believer? And he said, I believe in Jesus and I believe in Buddha. I was like, that's a weird way to worship Jesus, unfaithfully. <laughs> Zero gods before God. I'm pretty sure we're against that here. I didn't say that. That was in my head. Um, so he says it. And then I walk out of there not thinking much about it. And the moment I sat in my car seat, I just felt like the Lord said so clear as day, Cody, you know what you must do. Cody, you know what you must do. And I was like, dang it, I have a job description now. The Lord's asking me to share the gospel with this man. So I was like, all right. So I went home that week. I was praying about it, praying for him. And I happened to stumble. I, in my morning divorce, devotions, I was uh, in Second Kings. And it was about uh, Elisha and uh, the worship of Baal and Yahweh. And so there was an altar constructed and they were having a competition of who the real God was, Baal or Yahweh. And so there was a line in there that I read. Uh, and what's so funny is I was praying to God. I was like, I don't know what to say to this guy. God, give me words. And I read this line. It said, Elisha said, at what point are you going to stop teetering between two gods and actually have an allegiance with the one God, Yahweh? I was like, dang. I was like, it's Buddha, not Baal, but close enough. And so God had given me that scripture. And so I knew what I had to do. I started praying for him. So I show up to the um, the pawn shop. And, you know, what I was hoping for is an empty building. That's not what I got. It was like, man, this place is packed. Um, so I'm like, great. Now I got to be this weird pastor coming in, sharing the gospel. So cliche. Uh, so I walk in and we're having a conversation and there's like people like 
leaning into our conversation all around. Like they, they were listening. I'm like, dang it. Like I'm freaking out. You know, I'm shaking. I'm scared. So we're talking. We go back and forth. We're having some small talk. And then I asked them, I said, hey, there was something you said when we met last that really, really struck me. And I'm curious to, to know what, what about it. I said, you mentioned that you, you worship Jesus and, uh, and Buddha. And he's like, yeah. Like he wasn't surprised. He's like, yeah. And he, he went into a long explanation that I didn't really understand, but I was like, okay. And so what I began to do is I said, hey man, I know this is weird, but here's what I read in my devotions. I felt like God wanted me to read a second. And before I could even get the words out, he's like, yeah, I know what you're going to say. You're going to read that whole thing about two guys. It was like, yeah, well, I'm trying to be faithful. So just let me finish what I'm saying. So I share it with them and we talk a little bit and it got to the point where he just kind of wanted to argue with me. And once it got to that conversation, I think something that's true and I think we need to know is Jesus can fight for himself. He doesn't need you to convince anybody. He just wants you to be faithful and share. Now, whether or not that person rejects your message, that's on them. You still go home a faithful witness to the Lord. And so in that moment, I just kind of let that go. I said, yeah, my work's done. I told him exactly what I believe. I invited him into that. He said, nope. And I just walked out. You want to know what I was expecting? Oh man, I'm going to walk into this pawn shop and I'm going to preach Jesus and everybody's going to lay on the floor and give their life to him and I'm going to walk out the hero. Let's go. I'm ready. That's now what happened. And oftentimes that's, that, that's not the point anyways. The hero of the story is always Jesus. And so I want you to know that there's a suffering that's redemptive and God was teaching me that. And so when I went home and he didn't give his life to Jesus, uh, the story actually continues. It wasn't until like a month after that moment where I found out the scooter was stolen. So I had reached out to him and said, hey man, scooter's stolen. He emails back, yep, I know. He's like, the scooter was stolen. I bought it from somebody that stole it. I didn't steal it. I'm like, okay, that might be true, but it didn't matter. I was like, you know, and I'm trying to negotiate with him. I'm like, will you meet me in the middle? Can you reimburse me? Like I gave, you know, the scooter to the cops. I don't have it anymore. So I'm out the money I paid for it. And he's like, nope. Would that make any of you mad? I was furious. Did you see how cool that thing was? It wasn't cheap. I spent a penny on that bad boy. And now I had nothing. And so if I'm honest with you, over these months, I was just mad. I was angry at him. Anytime I thought about him, it was just like, ugh. And I had a lot of this tension and suffering as I thought about him. And so as I was preparing to preach this sermon, the question I asked God is, well, how am I faithfully being a, a co-sufferer with you for the gospel? And Jesus was like, well, here's where you're not doing it. I was like, oh, I didn't even think about it. And it wasn't condemning. He didn't condemn me for it. He just said, hey, here's your assignment. And what I felt like God asked me to do is just to pray for this guy. And the amount of weight that fell off my shoulders was like an elephant off my back. I felt so much compassion for him. I actually felt sorry for him. I was like, man, God, I got everything. Who cares about the stinking scooter? I have Jesus. This guy has half of Jesus, or at least he thinks. And in that moment, there was so much renewal in me. And I think God might invite you into that as well. And so there's a suffering that's empty, 
It's what I was doing with withholding prayer, withholding the gospel from that guy. And then there's a suffering that's redemptive that God's teaching me how to do right now. So Paul, literally what he's doing is he's inviting us. He said this in scripture. He said, do the work of, of an evangelist. An evangelist is a witness of the gospel. It's what, it's what Paul was doing all throughout scripture. Everyone he came in contact with, he was sharing the good news of Jesus. That's our call. Contextually, that was for him. Today, that's for us as well, that we might share the gospel with somebody. Are you willing to love like Jesus and suffer like Jesus? So here's how I want to land. The worship team is going to continue to just play in the back. And all I would ask you to do is just take a posture of prayer. And what you're praying through is who is that one person that Jesus might ask you to share the gospel with? And we tend to complicate it. All it is, share your story. What was your life like before Jesus? What was it like the moment it happened? What was your life like after Jesus? People need to hear your relationship with Jesus. People need to hear about it. Tell people about your relationship with Jesus and don't complicate it. When I share the gospel, I stumble over my words like a kindergartner. Doesn't matter. We're not the one changing the soul. That's Jesus' assignment. We're just the messenger. And so what I want to invite you to in this moment is to begin to discern who's that person in your life. It might be an enemy. It might be a friend. It doesn't matter. And as we worship together and pray through that, I think Jesus will reveal his heart to us. So let's pray. We hope this message encouraged you to know who God is and who you are in him. If you want to take a next step, visit frontlinegr.com slash next. We look forward to connecting with you there and we'll see you back here next week.